people don't want to see a politician standing knee or waist deep in water telling them if you haven't evacuated now it's too late to do so they have no interest in a politician they they wouldn't even um, adhere to a directive from a politician uh, in a disaster what they do want to see is someone in a uniform giving them directions about what to do because there's so much more trust in the person with the uniform on than there is with a politician. I guess to jump straight into it, so I came across your work, Professor, um, firstly through the the program that you teach at, at Griffith, the the um, that we were discussing earlier, the Climate Change Adaptation Program, and you teach a, a course there something along the lines of disaster communication um and then i you know investigated your work further and i and i saw an interview with you and tara brabazon which i thought was excellent i think uh, tara is incredibly eloquent and she's very good at asking questions and i thought it was really interesting to hear your story um not to not to repeat that that podcast because people can go and watch that conversation but i'd be curious to know in terms of your story professor who are you and how did you arrive at the place that you are at this moment? Uh, so I grew up on a farm. I, I often kind of joke and say uh, it was a hippie farm, but not a cool hippie farm. <laughs> so a farm without power, uh, without uh, an inside toilet <laughs> and all of those uh, challenges that comes with those kinds of lifestyles. Uh, so that got me really interested as an adult, didn't really appreciate it as a child, but certainly as an adult, it got me reflecting on that experience and how I, I guess we were really quite self-sufficient and, you know, I got this interest in nature and in gardening and that's all emerged in my kind of mid-life uh, stage reflecting back on those earlier years so that's really informed my interest in disaster communication but I began my career as a journalist in regional and rural Queensland where disasters are a fairly regular occurrence well they certainly were then and they're a much more regular occurrence now that got me really interested in talking to people about their experiences with disaster and how they coped with disaster, how they recovered from disaster, but also more importantly, how they thought about the landscape and the weather uh, and how humans interact with those elements. Uh, so after about six years of being a journalist in regional and rural Queensland, uh, I went to work for Queensland Health as a communication uh, specialist. And in that uh, period Queensland Health was undergoing a lot of change uh, but in, in that kind of environment you've got crises and sometimes disasters happening, pandemics, uh, you've also got the kinds of disasters and crisis management that occurs on an everyday basis in that environment. Uh, so this was really on reflection, again, building on those interests I had but much more in terms of the communication and human element of it and certainly developing that uh, from my journalism. Uh, an opportunity came up to teach a class at a regional university of a night 
while I was doing that work for the health department. And strangely enough, it was in broadcast journalism, even though I'd never been a broadcast journalist, but I, uh, because my background is old school print journalism. And I had done some video, uh, video or actual videos, <laughs> also old school, uh, and uh, book reviews for the ABC radio uh, in that regional area. Uh, so I was kind of familiar with broadcast and had uh, have an enduring love for radio. Um, so I did that uh, class. I was one step ahead of the students and it really got me interested in research and being an academic. And shortly after that, I uh, ended up with a full-time job as an academic. And that was the opportunity to bring a whole heap of interests I had, which were about disasters and communication, uh, regional journalism and radio all into the future, which was uh, back then it was going to be a 25 year plus future. Yeah. And I've maintained that research along the way. Uh, so a bit of a long answer to a <laughs> short question. No, no, that's, I think uh, one thing that we like to talk about on the podcast, or I should say I, because it's more a book that I've read that I can't, I don't stop going on about, but it's essentially positing this idea of cognitive diversity, where you use your subjective experiences in life, uh, whether that's your cultural background, where you grew up, and you apply those in areas which have not been applied before. So, you know, your background, growing up in a rural farm, adopting a, a, a life of simplicity, and then a deep connection with nature and applying that in a journalistic sense and also applying that within a, a context of uh, disaster communication, which I, I assume has given you a very rich and uh, niche area of study and of of been able to speak about something that I, I believe not many other people would be able to speak about it in the way that you can speak about it. And, and uh, I, I just to touch on the point, because I mean, there's so many areas we can sort of dive into now but you mentioned that you know it got uh, being in nature got you in touch and uh, with the environment and caring with it in a way that uh, I guess saw maybe I'm putting words in your mouth but you saw you and the environment as something that was equal um, and something that you felt you connected to um, and then obviously you got you because of that you uh, got connected to the idea of disaster disasters and felt very in tune or felt very aware of disasters were to struck struck a chord with with you so i wanted to know um firstly when you say disaster can you help us can you help us understand what you mean just to get the definitions out early and then how your experience with nature has informed your research today yeah when we talk about disasters we sometimes we are not specific enough so there, there are two kinds of disasters. There's human-made disasters and natural disasters. But really interestingly, now people are, are starting to recombine those two by saying this very interesting thing, which is all natural disasters have a human element to them. So, for instance, where we see major flooding, it's the people that we see being affected because the houses were built in areas where houses really shouldn't be built. Uh, so that's, that's where those two things are very much coming back together. But really a disaster is something that challenges uh, the state, 
um, the nation's ability to respond to it and to manage it effectively. Uh, it stretches resources sometimes as we've seen it breaks resources as well. Uh, it's been really interesting in the past few years in Queensland at least to see that there is now this idea that you as an individual have to be responsible for yourself uh, and be able to maintain yourself and your family for uh, and possibly even your neighbours and your community for at least three days because the government uh, and emergency management organisations are saying we will not be able to come and get you and save you if you are isolated for so you need to have water uh, food etc for at least three days um, so these are the kinds of things that we look at when we're defining disasters not just what the on paper definition of a disaster is but now we're seeing disasters that we would really never have expected and the scale and extent of them is absolutely challenging not just government and emergency organisations ability to respond but even our own individual ability to respond and cope with those things. You asked another question about my own, I think it's kind of my own experiences with disaster and how that informs the work I do. Um, if I've got that right. Mm. So when I was living on that not cool hippie farm, um, my parents went on a, a holiday for quite a few weeks. I mm. uh, took my little brother with them and I was the only one left home. And I think I was about 16 at the time. Mm. And uh, I knew how to operate the fire pump and the water pump and everything. And we had some catastrophic fires in mm. the area that we lived in. And anyway, I thought it's all right. I can, you know, I know how to get the fire pump going and the hose and mm. operate the bore, um, start the generator, all of that. Uh, and a couple of young um, police constables turned up to the farm and said, oh, you need to leave. <laughs> and I kind of laughed at them and said, yes, <laughs> no, I am not leaving. And the looks on their faces, I can remember it to this day. They were just so astounded that mm -hmm. a 16-year-old girly girl in a frock <laughs> was standing there going, yeah, I can't leave um, because my parents will, will mm. you know, kick my, yeah. kick my leave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so the they were just kind of looking at each other shaking their heads going I've got no idea what to do here and off they went um, yeah. anyway I operated the mm. pump and made sure that the embers didn't come near the house and mm. it was all good but of course when the parents came home from their adventure uh, I was in the biggest trouble of my life <laughs> <laughs> you should have gone <laughs> and I think I think that um has really underpinned my thinking about disasters and communication about disasters because mm. there was no communication between my parents and myself mm. at that point about what happens if there is a disaster while you're away. Do I stay? Do I go? <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I think as well that puts you in a very, uh, uh, a very peculiar and unique uh, spot because it allows you to be much more empathetic with those that are currently experiencing whatever disaster it may be, uh, a forest fire, a flood, 
and be able to understand the indecisiveness of action. And I think you also mentioned this before. It also, there's a political undertone of what is the politics of the day. So if you have someone that's a, if you have a polit, uh, a government that is a bit more right-leaning, that is l- less about a government intervention and more about individual liberty, you can see how that would color the discourse of what to do in a disaster. And, and likewise, if it was a more left-leaning government, how government intervention would be deemed as the correct the correct form of uh, dealing with crisis um but i th- it it really paints a very brilliant picture i think of of the complexity of disaster communication and a very simple story um and it, i think it also shows our interna- international listeners that uh, australia is in the, indeed a quite a crazy place uh with <laughs> <laughs> with all sorts of interesting things going on um and so i, I suppose uh now that we've touched on what a disaster is briefly and you know you've given that really beautiful story can you help us understand what your line of work is in terms of disaster communication because I think intuitively people understand what that means but I'm sure that there's nuances of that that research one of the things that characterizes my research is looking at public communication of disasters. So there's multiple arms to that. For instance, there's uh, a research project around the involvement of politicians in communicating about disasters, because you only have to turn your television or your radio on when there's a disaster to see that, you know, politicians want to get involved. So looking at how those processes can be managed to ensure effective communication with publics. And I'll give you just a little example there that uh, people don't want to see a politician standing knee or waist deep in water telling them if you haven't evacuated now, it's too late to do so. They have no interest in a politician. They they wouldn't even um, adhere to a directive from a politician uh, in a disaster. What they do want to see is someone in a uniform giving them directions about what to do because there's so much more trust in the person with the uniform on than there is with a politician. So there's that kind of political communication aspect. Uh, and then there's general, generally looking at news media coverage of disasters because yes, social media does play a big role and other people are researching social media and disasters communication, but people still turn to television if they're at home or radio if they're mobile uh, when there's a disaster on. In particular, our national broadcaster during emergencies uh, is tends to be the go-to point for people to, to get trusted and reliable information. Uh, so within that um, kind of project, Uh, not just looking at and analysing coverage, what happened, what could be done better, but also looking at journalistic practices during disasters. Uh, Because, of course, journalists come under extreme scrutiny, uh, probably in the aftermath of a disaster, in terms of how they've behaved, what actions they've taken, whether they've contributed to pain and suffering and misery that people have experienced during these events. Um, so that's really um, the, the big focus around public communication. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, so I guess just to touch on the, just to summarize, so obviously you talked about there's multiple arms of what public communication entails when it concerns disaster communication. So we have how our government officials, our representatives communicate um, to their electorates and to the, to the, to the wider community. And then you also have just the more general news media, how media is conveyed, what is said, how it's said, uh, uh, in which way it's being said. Um, and then you also mentioned some really interesting research uh, where you said uh, within a within a disaster that people actually don't really care much for what the politicians have to say or something to that effect, but rather they just want to be directed by that authority uh, in that area, whether that's like a, a fire, the head of the fire department or whoever is involved um and you also mentioned for the news media something you were talking about is journalistic practices and i'd be curious to know what, what how how do bad journalistic practices play into bad disaster communication or even good disaster communication if we're thinking about the kinds of things that journalists might do one really simple uh, example is the language that they use around a disaster and it's really quite fascinating that journalists and uh, presenters tend to I guess we could call it anthropomorphize disasters uh, you know they give these disasters human characteristics they were and if I take the example of a cyclone uh, it, in America you would call this a hurricane but in Australia we call them cyclones and they all get female names. So the cyclone, you know, is, is doing things such as a person would do, beating down on, uh, you know, devastating, uh, causing devastation as, as if it's deliberately doing these things. Um, they will often refer to a cyclone as she did this or she did that, you know. Uh, so these things can be really problematic because people start to see this disaster as the the thing that is the problem when it the thing that is the problem is the way we respond to them and the way we prepare for them and the way we manage the outcomes of those disasters the disaster would happen whether we were here or not <laughs> you know the cyclone would maybe not so often because humans have, you know, contributed to, if not caused climate change, which results in more of these types of events. But as uh, Indigenous Australians say, you know, the disasters were here <laughs> way before the people were. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. about the wording. It's about the language, the communication but it's also about what they do when they're engaging with people affected by disasters. Yeah, and I'm reminded of a of a story that happened very recently. So there's this uh, there's this uh, God forbid me using this word influencer that was on a on a on a plane uh, traveling somewhere recently, I think to Africa, and in the middle of the plane, uh, the pilot said. Oh, excuse me, everyone, we have a fuel leak. So we'll have to turn around. Um, and then obviously everyone started panicking and he sort of uh, video records his experience 
uh, of listening to this and he's sort of sobbing in the bathroom saying, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. It's very dramatic because, you know, the pilots just said there's a fuel leak. I don't know if we're going to get back in time. Uh, they land, they land back safely. Everything's fine. And then obviously the airline comes out and apologizes because uh, my understanding is that the fuel leak was such that it would actually not pose any material danger to anyone. However, the language that was used in that moment caused such a stir to create a imminent fear within people. And I think that is, if I was to tie that back to what you're saying, things like language, whether we anthropomorphize, whether we just use particular words uh, that are maybe hyperbolic or that could be misinterpreted by lay people, it is a very important thing uh, in, in public communication. And one wrong step, I imagine, can lead to a very uh, uh it can lead to a cascading chain effect of of uh i guess chinese whisperers or, or people not understanding what the actual intent or the actual message was it was to begin with would you say that's about right oh absolutely that that's a really good summary of what goes wrong mm. so you could use a, a similar example where uh, people will say things like, oh, this is a one in a hundred year flood. Now people think that means it should only happen every hundred years, <laughs> but it actually doesn't mean that. It means something completely different. Uh, and I'll give you another example. Mm. Uh, and it's not just politicians and journalists, but even people managing disasters uh, mm. who I will say it, are bound by legislation and manuals and you know, all the kinds of policy and directives, but there's something that they that is said during disasters, particularly floods, where it, it's a terminology where that people are told to evacuate in place. Mm. And I I ask people just as a little um not not a formal research project, but just as a little test wherever I, I go, if I'm in a cab or an Uber do you know what evacuate in place means? And most people have no idea what that means. Yeah. It actually means you need to get into your ceiling or onto your roof in your house or whatever structure you're in. Wow. But most people will go, I've got no idea what evacuate in place means. Hmm. So this kind of terminology, this language is very confusing to people who are under extreme stress or duress and maybe aren't able to process cognitively uh, the words as they normally would. So we really need to think about saying things like, get on your roof if you can. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, it, it, it seems painstakingly obvious. And yet I suppose that's the point of the research to say, uh, these things do need to be researched because they can have completely uh, far-reaching consequences if you just say, uh, exit on at place as opposed to get to your roof uh, and can even potentially cost lives which is obviously the worst case scenario or one of the worst case scenarios absolutely and one of the things that I really love about the research I do mm. even though it's traumatic and it's mm. awful it's that we can make a difference mm. and we feed our research back to industry to government Mm. and say that this is what we're finding and here's what we suggest uh, be changed as a result of that. Mm. Uh, so it's it's really exciting as a researcher to think that 
it, amidst all this terrible, um, you know, disaster, the crises, that you actually can possibly have a little bit of impact and effect. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I wanted to very quickly, Professor, touch on one story, one point, and then we can dive into maybe the elements that make up really good disaster communication or that break disaster, bad, a good disaster communication. So there was this airline uh, flight. I forget what exactly where it was. I think it was from Denver to someplace in America, essentially. And what had happened was the whilst the plane was coming to descend uh, uh, and to land, uh, the landing gear had some sort of issue where the essentially the button that would like light up when the landing gear was engaged uh, was not lighting up. So the pilots and the and the engineers in the flight uh, were unable to actually determine for certainty whether the landing gear was. Uh, whether it was engaged or not so they were circling and circling and circling and uh, what ended up happening was because of the intense the intensity of the moment and trying to figure out what was happening uh, the plane ended up running out of fuel and the plane ended up crashing and I think a number of lives were, were taken as a result of this issue of being so focused on to one thing um, and I think, uh, I think biochemically biochem- speaking, what happened was the adrenaline allowed their, their focus to collapse on the moment that was occurring rather than thinking of the wider implications. Yeah. And so it seems like in this moment, when in a moment of crisis or in a moment of high pressure, uh, people can make really bad decisions um, or decisions uh, that could have been avoided uh, are, are not. So I was wondering, like, is there, is there anything you've found in terms of when people are in a crisis, how they respond to crises uh, and how they communicate their way out of that, if you found anything of that sort? I'm just trying to think back through the examples and yeah. studies that we've done. So Yeah, and feel free to take your time as well. Yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to think of, in those 10 countries where we interviewed top senior emergency managers, mm. the, I, I think the hint that they give or the, the tactic that they use is to shift focus. Mm. Okay. So it, when you're really intensely caught up in a moment and you probably aren't seeing the big picture because you know, in a disaster, there'll be multiple places that will be on fire or flooding. Um, you know, you probably are just focused on the next place that's going to catch fire or the one that's on fire and shifting focus to look out for them to the big picture um, seems to be the way that they stop that collapse happening. Yeah. Um, and when you look out and see the big picture, you can sometimes see patterns uh, as these emergency managers explained that you don't see when you're in that collapsing situation. Mm, um, absolutely. So I, I think, uh, even on an individual level, if you're facing a disaster and you're just thinking about one thing and you're doing that, and it's such a great term that you use there, that kind of collapsing inwards, if you can 
find a way to break that and to stop and just even take five seconds and look what's the big mm. picture here mm. is it just my forest in my backyard on fire or is it happening everywhere mm. if it's mm. happening everywhere that means I can't get out of where I live yeah. uh, and I live in a fire zone and there's only one way out so mm. if it's happening everywhere then um, you know it's means I have to decide to do something different for instance stay and fight the fire but if it's only happening in my backyard but it looks like it's going to spread then I still have the opportunity to leave mm. Um, mm. instead of doing that thing where you're just so caught up in the moment that you're missing opportunities uh, that could actually mean the difference between saving your life and not mm. Mm. absolutely I think that really ties in well because if those pilots in that situation were to shift their focus for a moment, they would have been able to easily see the fuel indicator obviously ticking down. Um, and so it's a very, I think, interesting way of, re, uh, I guess, reframing the situation as another way of, of viewing it. Um, but to go back on to, to disasters, so obviously there's a number of disasters that are happening at the moment to do with climate change. So the floods in Pakistan, uh, and in Oman, um, and then there's drought uh, and all sorts of things. Uh, and then we've also just gone through maybe the biggest disaster in the 21st century, which is, or, or I don't know if you'd classify this as a disaster, it'd be interesting to hear, but going through COVID and the management or mismanagement of, of, uh, of, uh, of health outcomes, of vaccine rollouts, all those sorts of things. Um, so we've gone through these two, we're going through, both of them at the moment and they're both incredibly significant and i would like to get to better understand uh, i guess using these as an example uh, what are like the most important elements of effective communication and how do these two examples or any other examples demonstrate this or show to demonstrate how if they're not done can lead to these sort of things happening yeah the, the COVID example uh really brings out this very important lesson mm. that when something like a pandemic happens and you can apply this to disasters and other crises as mm. well uh, every agency dealing with the response to that needs to be on the same page mm. and that was not the case with COVID and if we uh, even just cycle back to Australia small spot in the big international picture local state and federal governments were not effectively communicating with each other let alone with the public so we were getting confused messaging from different levels of government uh you know federal government saying one thing um at nine o'clock on friday state government completely contra counteracting uh that that advice those directives at 9 10 on friday mm. uh, so these are the kinds of things that governments need to ensure that they all have the same message and that it's all going out at the same time uh, with the same consistency because mm. the thing that really erodes the confidence whether it's public officials like chief health officers mm. uh, or whether it's politicians um, and again, people would be much more inclined to, you know, get that 
um, solid health advice from a chief health officer rather than a politician. Mm. But regardless of who is giving the message, the thing that erodes public confidence is when these messages are at odds with each other. Mm. And, and in fact, what people then do is they freeze. They get to a situation where they're going, well, those people are saying I should do this, but these people are telling me that. And in a life-threatening situation, they can actually do that freezing where they mm. go, oh, I've got no idea what to do, what's going on here. Yeah. Um, in a situation like COVID, what mm. happened is because the messaging was conflicting about who's an essential worker, who isn't, mm. uh, you know, what are the restrictions? Uh, it's almost as bad as the GST when it was introduced. <laughs> uh, actually, no, it's far worse because the GST was only about money. Yeah. COVID was about lives. Mm. Um, so that was a really bad example for me to use. Mm. But, you know, it's the, the point really that I was trying to make was the confusion just reigned. And even mm. when governments knew that people were confused, they still didn't say, okay, let's all just stop for a moment. Let's mm. get on the same page and let's go forward from here mm. and make sure that this confusion doesn't continue. Yeah, and it was almost like a perpetual state of confusion where it wasn't only over like a, the first initial period, but it was over countless months where uh, the head scientists or for like, I guess in America, the Dr. Fauci, I think the one example that stands out is mask wearing. Because I remember at the start mask wearing, I don't think it was, uh, I think there was a bit of confusion whether masks were effective or not. And I think uh, the... Uh, uh, Fauci said that they weren't and then he said they were something along to that effect maybe I'm, I'm I want to be very careful but uh, essentially it could have been any sort of similarity where a scientist or a politician says one thing then they say another and that completely uh, it, it leads to like you said a lack of confidence a lack of authority a lack of assurance which going back to the research that you mentioned before people just want experts to tell them what to do yeah. And they don't want any black and they don't want any gray. They just want black and white so they can uh, be assured. And then I guess cover their most basic needs. It's, it's the need for security and safety. And when that's threatened, it seems like people are willing to do all sorts of uh, interesting things <laughs> uh, like uh, create bands of people that don't want to be vaccinated because there's been so much mistrust that has been uh, created by a lack of authority or, authority misstepping here and there yeah and all of that comes back to public communication what were the public told about these vaccines how was it communicated uh you know there were there was some inconsistency in the way it was talked about how it was developed uh, and all of these things just put seeds of doubt in people's minds uh, mm -hmm. which then um and, uh, you know, Australia is, like the rest of the world, not immune to conspiracy mm. theorists. Uh, it then gives rise to that kind of mm, almost hysterical kind of responses and reactions. Mm. Mm. Uh, I mean, some of the conspiracy theorists, theories that came out in COVID-19 were just mind-boggling, really. Mm. Yeah. Um, but, but one thing we found in our research, and this 
really emerged from some massive floods in Queensland in 2010 and 11, mm. where two thirds of the state was underwater. Uh, mm. So, you know, a catastrophic event really. Mm. Uh, what we found uh, then is that um, the, the politician who was in charge of the state of Queensland, the premier at the time, Anna Bly, actually modeled uh, fantastic uh, public communication around the disaster. Mm. She was not out there knee deep in water. She was in the emergency management center. Mm. Um, she, every time there was a, a press conference, uh, anything televised, she had key people beside her, the police commissioner. Mm. Uh, at that point, the army was called in as well. So she had a major general with mm. her and she was doing what politicians should do showing empathy, saying that she would give all the support she could uh, financially to these organisations to respond. Mm. But whenever anyone asked an operational question or anything about what people should do, mm. she handed over to the expert, to the people mm. who were managing and responding to that disaster. Uh, mm. So this is, a, this is a really great way of uh, ensuring public confidence and also ensuring that people actually do what they need to do when there's a disaster happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it seems like, and perhaps correct me if I'm wrong, Professor, but I'm getting a sense that uh, uh, doubt is one of the one of the most devastating uh, factors in poor communication and uh, or in communication in general and. And not only in communication, but just uh, having an understanding of what to do next or what to believe, because, uh, I mean, there's a fantastic book called Merchants of Doubt, which is essentially all about how fossil fuel companies adopted the playbook of the tobacco industry to, to sow doubt in the minds of, of uh, consumers to, uh, I guess, kick the can down the road in terms of climate mitigation. And it's so bad now that, I mean, even in our parliament, uh, uh, I think just yesterday when the climate bill was passed, um, the opposition party are, are, are using, I guess, uh, were, uh, phrases of climate denialism, um, which have directly can be founded in the 60s and 70s when doubt was being casted by these uh, industries, which, um, which to me is... a which seems like the most devastating impact, but I think also as well, it seems to be a seed of empathy within your research that I'm sensing, which is uh, doubt and a lack of authority. And as a result, everything that comes from that, like conspiracy theories, is a direct, direct result of poor communication, where if that was avoided, perhaps none of this would have happened. And so it almost seems like, uh, and perhaps I may be, may be misinterpreting this, but it's my sense that, uh, we have to be culpable for whatever comes of poor communication in terms of governments, officials, uh, and uh, experts. Is, is that is that correct, or am I taking that a step too far? Yeah, the doubt is absolutely the killer. Uh, that is the, and it can literally be the killer. If you don't know what to do, if you're getting conflicting messages, then you know that can be the freezing moment, as I mentioned earlier. And absolutely, governments, uh, politicians, emergency managers, anyone giving any directions 
need to be absolutely clear in what they mean at the time. They need to direct people specifically, this is what you need to do. Uh, this is when you need to do it. Uh, and, you know, this is what will happen if you don't take this action. Mm. Uh, so, you know, it, people, some people choose to stay and fight fires to save mm. livestock, to save their house, etc. cetera. Um, and that's, that is okay as long as they're completely aware that no one is coming to save them and that they make that choice um, in a fully informed and well, you know, they're well communicated with when they make that choice. Mm. Um, and sometimes it turns out well and sometimes it turns out absolutely devastatingly. Mm. Uh, so, yes, it, it, and it is the job of government and mm. emergency managers and management organisations to communicate properly and clearly with the public when these events occur. Mm. Uh, and yes, we don't like, in our research, we think the blame game is a terrible thing because mm. this is what journalists do after a disaster. And in fact, in the last Queensland floods that happened very recently, they were doing it during the floods. Mm. They went searching for who was to blame for the floods. Mm. And that is not actually helpful uh, at that point. But I think responsibility being taken by agencies and people mm. who communicate is absolutely crucial to making sure that doesn't happen next time. Mm. Mm. And, and, it, uh, uh, and it reminds me of, uh, of this idea of... Uh... I guess positive psychology uh, uh, of and uh, what's it called? It, the word escapes me now. But this uh, this idea that uh, failure, or even that, it seems to me a bit of a loaded word. But uh, treating people, uh, treating uh, disasters, or when a, a negative occurrence happens, and then trying to, like you said, point the blame is actually the one of the worst outcomes that can happen. And one of the best outcomes that can happen is we actually investigating the source, where did this come from, and then figuring out a solution. And that way, what will happen is firstly, according to this research at this hospital, because they did this at the hospital where um, doctors were punishing nurses or junior doctors for making mistakes. And the, this is a, quite a common response because liability is a very big issue within the medical field. Um, and doctors and junior doctors don't report their mistakes in that case because they know they're going to get in trouble um, but they did this research at this hospital where they adopted this approach where they say okay everything's let's put all our cards on the table you report everything in good faith and we'll just let's research it and they found that liability i think uh, liability insurance reduced by 75 percent mistakes increased dramatically but that's not because more mistakes happened it's because more people reported mistakes and then as a result, less patients were getting, uh, were impacted by the, by mistakes because they were able to figure out the problem and resolve it. And then they'll make, be able to make things better. And that sounds like, that sounds like a very similar thing uh, that's happening uh, with what you're describing. Um, yes. Yeah, so yeah, searching for who is to blame uh, probably solves a problem in terms of things like liability insurance <laughs> but it doesn't actually you know 
uh, because you can then say, well, that person might lose their job or they might face a law court or a civil um, suit, but it doesn't actually solve the root cause of why is this not just occurring once, but occurring quite frequently. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for, for me, I'm still really interested in why people choose to drive through flood water, despite mm -hmm. all of the public communication we have about how stupid that is, let alone how dangerous, people still make that choice. But what we don't know, which I find even more interesting, <laughs> and I always look for what's not there, um, you know, that's one of the things in my research, what isn't there? So what's not there in this instance is how many people choose not to drive through flood water? Yes, we yeah. have no idea. We know how many people do because inevitably they end up stuck and mm. worse consequences. But yeah. we don't. Oh, and the other thing we often don't know with the people who unfortunately die as a result of driving through flood water into flood water uh, is why they made that choice. How did they weigh up the risk associated with that? What was it that they really felt that they needed to do that caused them to drive through flood water? Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, uh, and I think it all ties into the different fields of research so it seems like disaster communication is also inherently a um uh, can be an interdisciplinary sort of research field where you're tying in psychology neuroscience um and all sorts of interesting other things which i probably know nothing about so i wanted to play a little bit of a game professor if you'll indulge my playfulness and um, so I'm going to say we are going to, let's say someone knocks on your door and says, Professor, you know, your research is fantastic. We need, we need a head of research. We need a head of uh, disaster communication to inform the, the, the state or the prime minister, whoever, whoever in whatever the situation is. Uh, and so they, they instate you in this position and then they ask, okay, so it's been, it's been a mess in the past, but, what are what are some things that you can help us do better? What are some of the ways that, as an institu at an institutional level, uh, and and or even and maybe even on a media level, like how can we make our communication better? What are the what would be the bullet points or maybe the just one point that you would pass on to them to make sure that uh, disasters uh, a bad communication can be avoided in disasters. I would say choose your words very carefully <laughs> and, and consistently. Mm. Build relationships when disasters aren't happening. Mm. So we've now got less time to do that, but we still have time. Build relationships with uh, gov other government levels, uh, emergency organisations, so that those relationships are really strong and so that you can be clear, consistent, and everyone can be on the same page when it comes to the words and the meaning that meanings that are conveyed uh, before, during, and after disasters. Mm. I say after disasters because uh, one of the things that annoys a lot of researchers is the very flippant use of the word resilience. Mm. Uh, because people, when people are told that, you know, 
well, how come you haven't, or are asked, how come you haven't recovered from that disaster? It's been two years. Um, your neighbours have recovered. What's wrong with you? You're not very resilient, are you? <laughs> uh, it's not helpful. In fact, it's actually really quite damaging because mm. everyone's circumstances are different. Maybe the neighbours didn't have their children die in a disaster. That's why those people are not going to ever recover. You know, they will continue to live and their lives will be different, but their, you know, recovery and resilience for them is not helpful at that time. Mm, absolutely. Well, if I was prime minister, I think I'd be very reassured on that moment. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, if, if, and if I was working for the prime minister, uh, no, I'd be running out the door if it was someone <laughs> from the prime minister's <laughs> office. Uh, and it's not a political thing. It's just working for politicians is not fun. Uh, yeah. But I would say to politicians, listen to the emergency managers. They are the experts. Mm. And also listen to the academic researchers because we want to help you. Yeah. We do all this research and we are here to help you. Ring me up during a disaster. Mm. Um, Anastasia Palaget, yeah. uh, Albo, Anthony Albanese, ring me up during a disaster. You can find my phone number quite easily yes and, and we'll ask, display it on the screen right now the number will the pop up <laughs> and, and ask my advice it's free i work i'm paid by the public mm. i'm here researching on the public dollar there is no reason why they can't ring me and go hey mm. uh, what would you advise for the forthcoming fire season how mm. should we communicate mm. um, it's free i've got the yeah information and all of my colleagues in who are academics doing research in this area we would love to get those phone calls mm. so so it seems like and perhaps this is a legacy from the previous tenure of the government but it seems like there's this uh, disconnect in terms of uh expert uh, getting expert opinion on really important issues um and also politicians in a sense, white knighting issues where they feel that they have to take on all the responsibility and then also try and come up with all the solutions rather than just deferring to authority, which, like you were saying, in most situations, that's what people want. Um, and I also imagine this is uh, quite a, a very, what I would imagine is like a very difficult time for disaster communication or communication in general. Um, where we're living in a post-Trump era, a post or a post-truth era, where people can say fallacious things, they will spread ten times faster. There's a professor, I think, Carl Bergstrom in the United States, where he does a class on basically misinformation and how quickly it can spread, and especially with social media now, you can basically uh, spread any message, and I think. COVID was a really good example where conspiracy theories thrived and it's the same with, you know, climate change where conspiracy theories can, can also thrive in the midst of poor communication, poor messaging, um, authority figures not taking responsibility or a lack of responsibility. It seems like this would be a really, really hard uh, time to communicate effectively. Is Do you know how we would 
how does a post-truth era of misinformation impact effective communication aside from the very obvious you know it's everything's going wild on tiktok so to speak uh it's such an important point that uh now the because of the conspiracies that have come out you know in this post-truth era uh, they get taken up much more quickly than they would have been previously. Uh, also, you know, as you were saying through social media, they're promulgated. Uh, what we then have is news media taking those up and sometimes erroneously repeating them mm. or even in making fun of them. They're actually exposing a whole heap of people who may not have known about them who then go, oh, there could be a kernel of truth in that. Mm. So people go down those, you know, wormholes and start mm. engaging with that. So what do we do to overcome that? Mm. Uh, I think it all comes back to it's the, the moment something happens and the people, you know, whoever's managing the response and communicating about it they need to stop and actually think really carefully about what words are we going to use because every word has weight and it has power and how are we going to communicate this to the public? Mm. Uh, quite often people will think, oh, we just need to get out there and start talking about it. But you actually need to take a breath and think, how are we going to talk about this because it's in that moment where any little stumble, any kind of error could then be grabbed by these conspiracy theorists and, you know, misused. Uh, so it is absolutely crucial that people think about that. Because even though people still go to social media, do use social media for information about crises and disasters, the, all the research shows that it's radio that people turn to when a disaster happens. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, radio, um, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, I love radio. Radio is fantastic. There's a radio in every room in my house. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, shower radio is great, right? <laughs> radio. I think I'm going to have to take that up uh, the next shower. I take just by, by radio. <laughs> um you can use your mobile phone and get oh, yes, yes. speaker. <laughs> um, but when we're turning to radio immediately for information, because we want to know what's happening between news bulletins, uh, mm. although that's interesting in itself, TV is now covering these disasters 24-7. You know, we've just mm. got this repeated coverage happening from the scene. Uh, the people engaging in public communication, it's mm -hmm. all about the messaging uh, and how much trust can people put in that messaging? Mm. So one false step, you're opening the door for all of those conspiracy theorists. Mm. And that, that is not helpful. And, you know, we've seen the outcome of that mm. in COVID, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm very tempted to ask a self-indulgent question because it's something I've been thinking about quite often, but I wanted to get your take on it, given that you come from a more journalistic background and also your research now. Um, like I was mentioning at the beginning, I've, uh, in my experience and my co-host experience, 
the the memories of the podcasts that we do that stand out the most are when guests have told stories and and i think this plays into our narrative sort of sense of uh, of conceiving of the world and our memories and it's a very uh, indigenous perspective where you know indigenous tribes have been telling stories for thousands of years and they've and they've lived to this day just through uh, just orally and uh, it, to me, this seems like if you want to leave an imprint of something in someone's memory, facts and figures, although they're important, are not going to be the things that are remembered, but the narrative that is being told will be. Um, and I'm saying this in a very rhetorical way as to seem maybe the point is, has more merit, but I actually don't know. And I would like to get a sense from you. Uh, how does, uh, and we can, yeah, how does storytelling play into uh, disaster communication if it does i don't even uh, i don't know if it's useful or not maybe it's not but i'd like to get your thoughts we love storytelling and this comes up all the time uh, i'm involved in a disaster management network at griffith university and we were having a meeting uh the other day and i said oh just um bear with me a moment I need to tell this story and everyone went well we love stories uh, so clearly it's and this is interdisciplinary uh, so clear clearly storytelling for um, academics doing research around disasters is really important when it comes to public communication I think we haven't harnessed the power of the story and I'm really excited now because I think there's something absolutely fantastic there that you've hit on. Mm. Um, if we can tell the story of what went wrong and what went right in disasters, and we can convey that publicly, you know, in easy to understand ways without traumatizing people, <laughs> then <laughs> um, <laughs> we're all traumatized, I think. Yes. By Absolutely. what's happening in the world um i think there's some real potential to prevent some of the problems that have occurred in previous disasters um everyone loves a good story uh, uh i'm speaking from an australian perspective we are the greatest storytellers <laughs> i'm sure everyone in every country thinks that they're the greatest storytellers but Australians can spin what we call a yarn, <laughs> uh, which is a story. And, you know, we're great tall tale tellers as well. We love to exaggerate our stories. Yes. Um, but absolutely. I think there's something there for public communication. Mm, absolutely. Well, I'm very tempted to keep going on and on and on and on, Professor, because I, I have a thousand questions, but I'm... I'm uh, I'm have to exert I have to exert some prudence here. Um, as the last question to ask, um, we ask this to all of our guests. Our, our channel is called Utopias now, um, and what we ask our guests is we we want to understand what your utopia would be, what would would look like, whether uh, that was on a day to day basis or just certain elements that you'd prefer. But yeah, whether that was in a storytelling format or in just a descriptive format, we'd love to know what your utopia would look like. 
Oh, I have to start this by saying that I always say to my um, my friends and sometimes some of my trusted colleagues that I call myself the ultimate pessimistic optimist. <laughs> pessimistic optimist. And they go, well, what's that? And I say, well, I always expect the worst, the absolute worst, with you know testing trying situations mm. because when it doesn't happen i am so happy <laughs> i am so happy and yes. so you know i'm i'm this is i don't own this car but i'm driving a 1968 fastback mustang down the freeway and it catches fire and i jump out and people are going oh you must be devastated and i'm going no i'm alive <laughs> you know, the car's on fire it's you know it's gone but i'm really happy because i'm mm. alive uh, <laughs> so <laughs> i i tell that <laughs> i explain that to you because this is really my version of utopia where we are prepared for the worst mm. the worst doesn't happen but because we're so prepared for the worst uh, in terms of response, management, and communication, above all, that when the worst doesn't happen, then we've we have communicated and managed and prepared in a way that has ensured the worst doesn't happen. Uh, so that I think that's utopia for me. Mm. It sounds like effective uh, uh, expectation management, and uh, I think uh, that's the way to go. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned expectation management because I'm right into expectation management and you may or may not use this bit on the podcast, but you know <laughs> when people spread rumours about you mm -hmm. and it comes back to you and people say, oh, everyone knows such and such about you. Um, I, I now just expectation manage and when I hear that, I start to mirror that behavior back to people and go if you expect me to be like that I will be like that <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I think that's a that's a a, a a tip and trick that we all have to adopt and uh, and manage manage those situations are much better but wouldn't it be great in disaster land if we took up expectation management where people we said to people this is what we expect you to do mm. and people went well i'll do that then <laughs> yeah absolutely um this is yeah it's very interesting i mean i think it's a uh, to that point of when you expect people to be a certain way then they will show you that and i think i think in education there's a there's a particular word i think it's called uh what's it called the pygmalion effect where when teachers expect students their ability in a particular way there was some research on it um basically showed like if you treat students like they're silly they will then uh, they will feel that and they will emulate that in their responses whereas if you treat students really well they will feel like they're really good students and they will perform better um and so yeah i think it's all about you know expectations are really important but nevertheless i'm i'm on i'm a i'm digressing now um I wanted to say thank you very much, Professor, for joining me. But I really wanted to say thank you for coming on. I uh, have a lot of gratitude for you speaking with me and sharing your research. And I hope uh, I hope Albo is watching so he can uh, uh, take some good notes. <laughs>